0: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Okay, welcome to the Neurohacker Collective Podcast. My name is Daniel Schmachtenberger. I work here in uh, research and development, and we are uh, delighted to have Dr. Daniel Stickler with us today, who has... uh, joined the team not that long ago as our new medical director. And uh, he is also the medical director of Aperion Academy and uh, Aperion Health Centers. Uh, Dan has a really fascinating background in medicine, starting out as a surgeon, getting into uh, bariatric surgery, and then getting into lifestyle from there, and getting into kind of uh, all things health, wellness, anti-aging medicine, senogenics, hormone optimization, and then deeply into uh, genomics applied genomics and epigenomics has a great platform for training practitioners in uh, how to do genetic assessment and kind of nutrigenomic work and like that. And he happens to be one of the few medical doctors in the United States that has done a really deep dive into nootropics and cognitive chemistry and kind of in the integrative psychiatry, but on the performance optimization rather than on the uh, disease uh, management side of uh, psychological and cognitive well-being. And he created a great course in nootropics, which is how we connected. And uh, so, Dan, it is a delight to have you here today. It's great to be here. And so what we're doing is this particular podcast will be the first part of a three-part series on cognitive chemistry. So for those who are listening, who are interested, (coughs) um, there's a lot of things for cognitive enhancement that are outside of chemistry. We can do EEG neurofeedback, which Dan could talk about, and you know we have m- many people who will talk about. We can do meditation stuff, we'll have a whole series on sleep. There's, there's a lot of things that are relevant to the cognitive space, but we're, we really kinda wanna dive in on understanding all the foundations of cognitive chemistry. So we're gonna do this three-part series together with uh, Dr. Sickler. Uh, the first one that we'll do today is on the foundations of cognitive chemistry. Uh, which is uh, what nutrients the brain needs to do all the things that it does well and how to make sure we're getting those and what um, kinds of toxins, pathogens, issues can affect cognition and how to avoid those and like that. The uh, second part that we'll be doing soon will be on nootropics and smart drugs and specific cognitive enhancement supplemental chemistry. And then the third one will be on more advanced topics that people usually do in relationship to a medical practitioner. So specifics to um, how you can do cognitive chemistry more dialed in to you based on genomics and based on assessing hormones, assessing neurotransmitters, those kinds of topics. So this should be a really fun three-part series. And we dive in today with foundations because we really want people to do the more uh, advanced work and supplemental work on a healthy, strong foundation. So this is our goal for the day. So, Dan, if we if we kind of take the model of you know, the Chinese medicine model where we look at excess and deficiency, right? So what are the, we can have issues from deficiency, what are the nutrients that we need to get enough of for the brain and nervous system and associated physiology to work well, where if we have any kind of deficiency, then we can have problems, and then what are the things we can have excess of, either excess of a nutrient that we need, like sugar or copper or whatever, right? Or Uh, toxins that really shouldn't be in the body at all, toxins that aren't being excreted well, pathogens, which are kind of a living subset of toxins. So I think if we look at the model of uh, what are the toxicities we want to avoid and decrease, what are the deficiencies that we want to increase, and then what are the regulatory issues, whether we're talking about from a Genetic or sleep or mindset or et cetera, Like regulatory dynamics. I think maybe that'll be a good model for us to explore it. Does that sound good?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's like a textbook uh, you're talking about there.
0: <laughs> I we won't I mean, we won't get all of it for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean that's uh, I mean that that would be several hours of uh, of conversation to to address the the deep dive into those. So, uh, yeah, I think. Uh, Keeping, keeping it to the more common areas that most people are familiar with would probably be the best way to go with that.
0: So let's start with deficiency, um, nutrients. And uh, just to clarify, when we're talking about deficiency, we're talking about not uh, clinical deficiency, meaning you know if someone has low enough levels of vitamin D, they have rickets, or if they have low enough levels of vitamin C, they have scurvy but between optimum levels and a full-on disease state is a pretty big room for suboptimal. And so we want to talk about what are optimal ranges for various nutrients that are needed for not just health in general, but specifically cognitive and psychological health. So <clears throat> if if people are kind of new coming to this, what are the foundations of nutrition that are relevant for brain health and chemistry?
1: Well, I, I think it it would be best to kind of start off by clarifying um you know deficiencies and excesses Um, some some of the nutrients have a very narrow spectrum of of deficiency and excess so that they're very narrowly focused into a range of optimal um but the bruce ames did a really good job of talking about micronutrients and uh, his triage theory of them and and i think it applies well from what i've seen in clinical practice where the body has has two different mechanisms at work you have the the everyday function the survival function um, where it's using certain nutrients and and they're they're allocated to the everyday survival but then in the background of that we also have long-term survival and long-term aspects of like dna repair and monitoring and things like that but when we when we get deficient, we may not have overt signs of deficiency because it's being triaged, so they're taking the limited amount of nutrient that we have. The body does this and, and allocates it to the things that we need for our daily survival. And so we may not be aware of this ongoing deficiency of some micronutrient um, or a macronutrient even that could be uh, impairing long-term survival benefits. And so you know looking at at it from a symptomatology standpoint it's it's kind of um it's kind of vague when we go with symptoms so what we want to look at is what are the items that are are really significant that we need to get in every day to maintain not only that that daily aspect but also that long-term survival piece
0: yep long-term survival and uh optimization obviously go together right because if we're right. If we have enough calcium in the blood for all the critical calcium ion channel stuff that has to happen daily, but we're moving slowly into osteopenia where That's some right. of the reserves are decreasing, we're also moving into suboptimal function even though we're still
1: asymptomatic. Yeah, and we have i mean—we have systems in place. The body is capable of making many things, but we also have some essential nutrients. And then we have what we call conditionally essential nutrients, which are nutrients that the body can make, but under under stressors or, or increased demand, the body can't keep up with needs. So we need to get those into our diet in some way.
0: So do you think amino acids
1: are a good place to start for brain nutrients? Yeah, Yeah, it's a great place to start. I mean, um, you know, we, we deal with, with amino acids, the body's, body's capable of making most of the amino acids, but we also have the the essential amino acids which the body can't make you know we're there's not we're one of the few organisms on this planet that has to that can't make all of the proteins that we need in our body we we have to have certain amino acids that are going to be able to be taken in in the diet that we're not capable of making but we need to survive and uh, so having a good balance of that intake of protein is essential, and proteins have different biologic values when it comes to the amount of essential amino acids that are present in them. Uh, We see a lot of issues with people who have low protein intake that uh, are vegetarian, and so it's not that the, the vegetarian aspect is in any way negative, but it's something that you want to pay attention to because you will need to supplement certain things to maintain adequate nutrition, especially of, of cognitive function in that situation.
0: So for the, those who don't know, what is the role of amino acids in neurochemistry?
1: Well, the amino acids are, are the building blocks of all proteins, and there's uh, these proteins can take the form of of receptors. They can take the form of... Um, neuromodulators uh, there's they're the building blocks of what we require in order to function in an optimal state and when we don't have that ability to build those it's like having like you're building a house and you you, you have all of the uh, essential pieces to build that house but the nails are missing so you can have all of the additional wood and you can have excess of bricks and everything like that but if you're missing the nails or the mortar then you're not going to have a solid structure. And that goes the same with neurochemistry. If you don't have all of these nutrients that are there to balance out and make everything that's needed, you're going to, you're going to end up with deficiencies.
0: So I think uh, a specific, simple, interesting point for people is that the uh, brain has a lot of different kind of signaling chemicals, um, peptides and endorphins and... Uh, neurohormones and the neurotransmitters that many of us are used to hearing of uh, Dopamine and serotonin are the most commonly heard of uh, happiness-related kind of uh, psychiatric hormones. I mean transmitters are both made directly from key uh, amino acids. So tryptophan converts into serotonin and then melatonin to sleep and dopamine or tyrosine. I mean dopamine from tyrosine or phenylalanine. So um, this means if someone is not either getting enough dietary amino acids, so they're not getting enough protein or they're not breaking it down or absorbing or assimilating it, they literally don't have the building blocks necessary for key neurotransmitters.
1: Right. And I mean, you've got to look at it from a the total system standpoint, too. I mean, you know, do they have the the mechanisms in place to utilize those amino acids as well? So you've got to not only have that that precursor piece, but you've got to have the steps in between to get to that final output. And, um, you know, we've seen some issues with that with with some of the tyrosine hydroxylase um, deficiencies where you can get adequate amino acids, but you're not actually converting it into um, the dopamine in the end result.
0: So what are some of the... um We'll kind of move from amino acids for a minute. What are some of the micronutrients that are necessary to convert amino acids into neurotransmitters?
1: Well, uh, and I think it's important to to really define the micronutrients. The micronutrients are the, the sort of the vitamins and minerals that are required in, and most of the time these are required as cofactors. So they're required in those steps that I was talking about of going from You know the tyrosine to the dopamine you know what are you going to need in there what what pieces might be deficient that could impair that Uh, b6 uh, is a common micronutrient It's a common deficiency that that we see and it can be a rate limiting step in the creation of neurotransmitters in the brain when we have deficiencies Um, vitamin d also another one Um, b12 another one magnesium um, copper zinc I mean, these are all micronutrients that are fairly common as far as deficiencies are concerned. Uh, in the in the American diet, I mean, we talk about how balanced our, our diets are and everything, but our food chain has become very deficient in these micronutrients. And, you know, we do, a lot of people will say, well, I'm going to get all my micronutrients from food. And unfortunately, when you look at the micronutrient content of the food that we're eating today, relative to 50 years ago, there's there's significant deficiencies in those micronutrients that we had historically had plenty of.
0: So since that might be unfamiliar for a lot of people, um, why is it that even if someone is eating healthy food, they're eating kind of raw produce or cooked, but you know, fresh produce, even organic, they might have less micronutrients and specifically, why is that such a big deal for minerals?
1: Well, for minerals, it's uh, it can be pretty substantial. Our soils are becoming depleted, and that's where most of the mm-hmm. the micronutrients of the foods that we consume are coming from. And and you see it. And you know, we we really focus on organic foods, and we're all excited about organic foods and the health components of organic foods. But much of the organic farming can result in even greater deficiencies in the uh, micronutrient profiles of foods, uh, of the vegetables. Because um, Nathan, I can't think of his last name, but um, he's he's kind of the big researcher into nitric oxide. I had a conversation with him. We were talking about the nitric oxide content of kale and uh, beets and things like that, and he had done a study on organic versus uh, commercially farmed and found that there was a significant deficiency in nitrates in the kale that was organic relative to the... Commercially farmed because in the commercial farming they were adding nitrates to the soil, and that's what the plants were using. So we have to understand that it's not just that the fact that we're eating the plant, but we have to understand that the 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 environment that the plant grows in is going to be essential in the micronutrient component that that plant contains that we essentially get. Then we've got the the aspect of glyphosate with the commercially farmed stuff, which is a heavy metal chelator which means it binds up to metals, which are micronutrients, and the minerals, and it will bind them to the point where we can't absorb them. So it will take out positive um, uh, cationic um, micronutrients like copper, zinc, selenium. Those kind of things will be bound up so that we can't absorb them. And so you've got to look at the bigger picture of everything when we're talking about getting these micronutrients from food and understand truly what you're getting and what you're not.
0: I think when I first started studying health and nutrition, the book Empty Harvest by Bernard Jensen was one of the first ones that I read. Great where book. Where he yeah. went deep into uh, the effects of modern agriculture and monocropping and uh, et cetera on soil health and the decreased microbiome of the soil, the decreased humic and fulvic acid content, as well as decreased trace minerals. And of course that comes through into the plants. Um, you know, I, For those who've studied it, they know for those who don't, modern agriculture, Traditional agriculture typically puts three primary nutrients into the soil, right? NPK. So the the, the critical things, potassium, nitrogen, phosphorus, that the soil absolutely has to have to grow plants. But the other 72 plus trace minerals and all of the microbiome and et cetera that are necessary are not going in there. So it can get very deficient in that. So you just brought up one of the very few examples that might be possible of if someone's doing organic where they are not getting nitrogen up high enough. You might actually be low in nitrate i'd be super curious to see the sample size and where he was sampling from on organics because um, obviously someone can do organic where they are not getting nitrogen or potassium you know or phosphorus up high enough uh, but in general if they are turning stuff back over and putting it back into the soil the likelihood that things other than those three are much higher is going to be high
1: and i think he actually sampled from three different states uh, organic farms from three separate states but I don't know what the use of the farm was or anything like that.
0: So with regard to organic obviously um, more nutrients from a more comprehensive set of fertilizers than three minerals is one goal but really the much bigger goal is avoiding the pesticides herbicides fungicides right. that are put on. I would buy organic and supplement nitric oxide any any day it, wouldn't you?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, yeah I I actually take uh, beetroot crystals yep. as a supplement to boost my nitric oxide levels
0: Since we're touching on it in case people don't know what
1: is the relevance of nitric oxide? Oh nitric oxide is like the uh, I mean it's it's one of my favorite nutrients uh, altogether. it has uh, three different really different separate components you have the the neuronal nitric oxide, which exists predominantly in the brain, and you're dealing with it working as a neurotransmitter, it works as a uh, free radical scavenger, uh, but it can also swing the other way and, and create these peroxynitrates uh, if you're not balanced in, in keeping it in a, uh, a really homeostatic state. And then we have the inducible nitric oxide, which has a lot to do with the health of our immune function. And then we have the endothelial nitric oxide, which uh, is something that really is a solid predictor of long-term cardiac risk. And it has to do with our ability to, uh, of our vessels to really be resilient when it comes to blood pressure changes and things like that, uh, post ischemic events, those kind of things.
0: And as far as the uh, peripheral nerves go, one of the fun things where I think many people heard about nitric oxide first is, uh, part of its neurotransmitter role is uh, involved in transmitting sensations of pleasure. So nitric oxide deficiency and anhedonia commonly right. go together.
1: Um, well, and, and on top of that, people who don't respond to uh, erectile dysfunction drugs, right. they are almost always deficient in nitric oxide. So you boost their nitric oxide, a lot of times they don't need the erectile dysfunction drugs. And those that aren't responding, you give them a boost of nitric oxide, and sure enough, they start responding to the drugs
0: right we didn't bother selling it but we made a really fun cocktail with uh, <laughs> PDE4 and PDE5 <laughs> inhibitors and nitric oxide boosters and all that fun stuff oh yeah um, so coming back to protein and amino acids for a minute so amino acids are the building block of protein they are foundational for making neurotransmitters they're also foundational for making just structure everywhere including neural tissue structure um, as far as foundations go because we can supplement right and so like obviously for, for dopamines and catecholamines is why we have the the DLPA and the N-acetyl tyrosine and qualia, but, but to just have foundational amino acid sufficiency, uh, what are some key things people can do?
1: Well, I mean, truly supplementation, if you're not taking complete proteins in the diet, and that, and that's that's the key, I mean, first and foremost, take complete proteins in the diet. I mean, you're talking about uh, proteins that are more um, complete would be things like um, a whey protein concentrate or a egg protein. Uh, you can get complete proteins with vegetable sources, but they usually have to have added uh, pieces to them. So you have to have quite a variety of vegetables to get all of the essential amino acids in there because vegetables are notorious for missing um, certain essential pieces but if you mix it up really well and you've I mean it really takes some good planning as a, a non um, as an, a vegetarian or a vegan has to really plan well with the, uh, the vegetables that they take throughout a day so that they can create that complete mix of these essential uh, amino acids or they will be missing uh, certain ones like missing the nails for the house i mean you know you can have all this this great material to build the house but without those nails you're not going to have a solid solid structure and that that's what happens in the body when you're missing one of those um, one of those key pieces and um, you know tyrosine tyrosine's a big one and you know it, there's not really much toxicity with amino acids i mean you can have the body will tend to take the amino acids and through gluconeogenesis, it'll actually create carbohydrates out of them. So it'll just break them down if you have an excess of the of the amino acids. So you're not really at risk for getting excess, but it's very common to get deficiencies in the amino acids. And that's why supplementing with, with the amino acids, either in a protein powder or in a, uh, a supplement that's very directed at the mix that's required for the brain, like qualia, gives you that baseline that at least keeps you above that that deficiency threshold so
0: are there any particular proteins that you suggest people avoid or that they
1: might want to avoid uh you know i don't i don't prefer the soy proteins and i know this isn't going to gain me any favors in the vegetarian community but uh, you know i the the soy protein soy just it, it contains too many things that are potentially Toxic to the body. I mean, you're talking about the uh, lectin contents. You're talking about the um, uh, the the SERMs, the the uh, estrogen receptor modifiers. Those kind of things, which I've seen some very negative impacts from those. And, and you know, the argument goes both ways. I mean, you talk about red meat and you talk about the carcinogens and, and the toxicities that are associated with that. So it's always a balancing act between these two. And, you know, I, I kind of fall in that mid-range where I like the um, eggs and seafood as my primary protein sources. Um, they give a pretty complete uh, mix with those. But uh, when you're when you're dealing with specialty diets that are not really conducive to the human physiology they're not ideal for the human physiology uh you're going to have to to get some of those base nutrients from somewhere else and you know with when i'm when i have and i have quite a few vegetarian clients when I'm with them, though, I actually set up their regimen based on what their primary food intakes are. Mm-hmm. So I do end up supplementing them a little bit more. And with, with the other end of the spectrum and the paleo and Adkins style eaters, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing more with mitigating toxicities and inflammation. So, you, you know, you don't have a—it's not like, okay, well, there's a perfect diet that, that is ideal. Uh, you've got to balance that between uh, the individual preferences that people have.
0: Now for people who are wanting to kind of dial it in more and know if a diet they're on is really working well for them, uh, do you do amino acid testing, so Genova amino acids or something like that to get a sense of uh, where people's amino acid profile is?
1: You know, I I used to do those and I just, you know, the amino acids, I mean, unless you're looking at a, a glaring deficiency on those tests, it's, it's not that helpful. I mean, you know, the meal you had the night before is really going to affect what what you're seeing in the blood it's just uh the test by itself looking at adequacy it's it's more of just looking at the history and the uh the current lifestyle habits i mean i'd rather have people document their food intake for for two weeks than spend the money on an amino acid test in general i mean and regarding regarding mm -hmm. sufficiency with
0: with protein for different body types so how I mean, there are obviously some people who went vegan, felt healthy for a while and then started feeling like they ran into some challenges. Other people felt less healthy right away. Other people felt healthy, healthier enduringly. So there's obviously gen- genetics and there's obviously how someone does it. but There's also genetics that are involved and other physiologic factors that are involved.
1: Um, speak to that. Well, the first first thing I note with most uh, people that go on the vegetarian diet is that they they generally thrive initially. I mean, they're they're all about it. I mean, and a lot of it has to do with the calorie restriction. I mean, that that low calorie intake um, is pretty common with the vegetarian diet, and people feel really good on that. They also feel good because they're getting rid of some toxicities that they're going to get from the meats. But vegetables have their own sets of toxins as well. Um, what i find is and it goes back to that triage theory of micronutrients is th- it's not a complete diet i mean you know we're we're omnivores by physiology and we require certain nutrients and and you can you can do well you can thrive for a long time on the vegetarian diet if you're monitoring those micronutrients and making sure you're supplementing the risks for deficiencies but what happens is over time, and, and it may take 10, 12 years of being on the diet. I've seen people that went 15 years before their health really collapsed. But that triage theory is that background stuff that's really required for long-term health and optimal thriving gets, gets put on the back, back burner and just does not, um, not function well. So the overt stuff that you're gonna pay attention to, you're gonna feel that and you're gonna, you're gonna see that. But you're not really paying attention to that that deep stuff that that is all about long-term thriving. And, and like I said, it's not that you shouldn't do it. It's just more of really paying attention to the fact that this is going on and making sure you're doing things to to mitigate that that potential outcome.
0: So, just to clarify and wrap up a few things for people. So in An essential amino acid is an amino acid we have to get from food. Mm -hmm. Other amino acids are ones that our body can create from the essential amino acids. Uh, Complete protein contains all the essential amino acids, eight of them, but our body has 23 or so primary amino acids Mm -hmm. that are involved. Some proteins, like eggs, have kind of all 23 or most of them because it's everything necessary to make a little creature, right? And so it has a particularly easy time providing all the amino acids if the body's having a hard time converting them for other deficiency reasons, which is why some people do particularly well with those like beyond complete proteins. Mm -hmm. Most plants, they all have amino acids, but they don't necessarily have all eight essential amino acids. Most of the time they don't. So if you get a wide variety of different legumes, beans, nuts, seeds, greens, you're going to get different amino acid profiles from each. So where people are getting amino acids from food, pretty wide variety is relevant. The few plant sources of complete proteins, if you're not taking extracts like a brown rice protein, which represents one or 2% of the total brown rice, the algaes are a particularly unique source Mm -hmm. that I think is worth mentioning. If people do spirulina, chlorella, blue-green algae, they're just kind of micronutrient dense across so many categories, detox and... Yeah, they
1: have have much more than that even. I mean, those those are awesome foods to supplement.
0: So I do know a, l- a lot of people who are doing kind of vegetarian, vegan, super food oriented diets, algaes, bee pollen, things that are very nutrient dense and amino acid dense are something they oftentimes supplement as a food source with. Mm. Um, if someone wants to learn more about protein and amino acids and getting enough amino acids on a plant based diet, I'll just recommend real quick. Uh, I think there's a website called veganbodybuilding.com that has yeah. a lot of good resources. And a lot of athletes, you know, have kind of really dialed that in. And if people are wanting something on the closer to paleo side, what would you say is a good, best resource for people?
1: Um, I, you know, I like uh, Mark Staley Apple and uh, and Rob Wolf's website. I mean, they're both. Uh, I mean, they're they're biased. I mean, you're you're going to get bias on on Any either thing. end of what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's not really a good place to go for a a nice balance of saying, well, you know, this is fine, but you know, here, do this. Right. Uh, you know, we deal with, uh, like I said, when we, when we're dealing with it, we have people who are paleo, Atkins, ketogenic, um, vegan, vegetarian. So we have the, the full spectrum of, uh, of clientele. And, and you know, the, here's the thing that, that people, people tend to be very, um, uh, judgmental about foods. and, and um, supplements even i mean you know people will say well i'm not going to take a a synthetic medication but i'm okay taking any of the any of these natural or herbal and and i think we need to step back from that and realize that that really what's the ultimate goal the ultimate goal is to achieve optimal health and and really within an environment that's sustainable and So when I look at supplements, when I look at medications, uh, when I look at foods, I look at it as input to the body. And and when you do that, you're not labeling it according to source or anything like that. You look at it as an input. Okay, is that input sustainable in the environment? Great. Uh, Does that input achieve the results that I'm looking for? And does that input create any side effects that might not be desirable? So instead of saying, you know, is it natural? Is it synthetic? Start saying, let's look at the input, and and get rid of the the judgment around what you're dealing with. I mean, you know, some people say I don't want anything that's like this herbal voodoo stuff, and others will say I don't want any of this this synthetic voodoo stuff. Uh, but it's not a matter of of that, and I, I respect people's opinions on that. I had a guy the other day that that really said, you know. I, I respect what you're saying, but if there, if it comes down to an equal opportunity or equal outcomes or they're pretty close, I'd prefer to go with something more natural. And I said, yeah, I, b- I believe that too, and, and I definitely would do that, but I'm not going to hesitate to at least suggest something that may not be natural that may give a better benefit and, and okay. give them the pros and cons of that. Give me an example
0: of a synthetic chemical that you think has the possibility for meaningful health benefits.
1: Uh, synthetic chemical mm-hmm. um well i mean you know one of the uh, one of the medications that we use is metformin okay mm-hmm. glucophage it has very positive results in multiple areas i mean you're talking about boosting mucus production in the gut which boosts the uh, bacteroides uh, bacteria in the gut really shifts gut outcomes um it upregulates AMPK in the cell, which is one of our major targets for health is AMPK activation. And you know we have a, a, a synthetic drug that is about five cents a day that um, really will help mitigate many of the uh, long-term um, negative impacts of aging. Now on the flip side of that, we have uh, berberine, which creates a similar response. And berberine is derived from, uh, I think it's from goat rue, which is a, uh, you know, it's a pretty simple uh, herbal to use, and it can be used in, with a similar outcome. It's not quite as strong as the metformin. But then when we look back at it, I mean, metformin was, uh, it's an extract of the French lilac. So even though it's synthetic, it's mimicked from a natural product that was used for several hundred years for the treatment of diabetes. Right. To help mitigate blood sugar issues, but in that situation, you know, if I have somebody that's at a higher risk for, um, you know, blood sugar issues, uh, trying to to get the weight under control, working with gut health, I'm going to suggest the the metformin in those situations over the berberine just because it's a it's a stronger outcome. But if they say I really don't want to do anything synthetic, then I'll I'll go with the berberine. But we have plenty of really amazing synthetic chemicals that have positive outcomes in the human body you know people that i've, I've had discussions with people about natural versus uh, man-made and uh you know i said you know i really like riding in a car i'd prefer that over a horse um but you go with the technology. You go with the things that advance. Well, why would you go with the car over the horse? Well, it, it's going to get me there faster, and and it's a much more comfortable ride. But it's man-made versus the natural components. So why do we look at the bodies in a different way than that?
0: I think I, I'm going to double-click on this one because I think it's actually a fun and important topic. So in an area like transportation, uh, even getting on a horse typically – people are thinking about a saddle and a bit and things that are man-made, right? Um, Bareback's pretty uncomfortable. Um, And even domesticating the horse, you can say, was outside of some definition of natural. And then most people are pretty happy with a car and even an airplane. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't without side effects, right? And so if we look at the whole system here and we say side effects to the environment, roads sucked, right? Um, And... uh, in terms of roads cutting up ecosystems, in terms of local microclimate warming, in terms of the asphalt, in terms of the fossil fuels, right, like they they sucked. So there's this issue that when we optimize for one element, one metric in a complex system, it's oftentimes at the expense of a lot of other metrics we aren't measuring. So if, if we consider health measured by cholesterol and LDL, then statins are definitely just good for you if your LDL is high, but they might also be neurotoxic and hepatotoxic, but we're not measuring for that. So I think one of the reasons that a lot of people prefer natural, and I would agree with this, and by natural, they mean arising in the evolutionary environment is in an evolutionary environment, everything was co-evolving. So it was factoring all of those things, right? A lot of things had to be co-factored or wouldn't have been selected for. Cause it was really the kind of emergent property of all those factors together. It might've been millions of metrics. And so if we evolved with some plants or with some animals, we're eating them over the course of millions of years, there's, there's a pretty good chance that all of those things have been well factored by the selection process itself. Mm-hmm. We make some new shit, we test three or four metrics. It does well on those. It might suck on like a thousand other metrics and we don't know. Now if it's something, if one of the metrics we're testing is say longevity, like with metformin. longevity is a metric that probably relates to the whole set of other metrics, right? And it's kind of like a selection criteria. The whole network, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But might it like put off of some kind of fucked up epigenome for the kids? We don't know. We haven't done that level of uh, assessment yet. Probably not. Um, but I think in general, when we think of natural versus synthetic, we are thinking about things that went through an evolutionary comprehensive selection process. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a good bias but it's just an initial rule of thumb bias, right? And then we want to go deeper and say, well, there's plenty of plants that can kill us. And they're very natural. Hemlock <laughs> is a very natural product. Yeah. And then there are, whether we're talking metformin or methylene blue or whatever, right? There's a bunch of synthetic things that happen to interact with our chemistry in a really kind of comprehensively positive way. Maybe not every day, but most foods aren't good every day. Yeah. Um so, yeah, we think about it quite similarly, biasing towards things that have already gone through an evolutionary selection process and knowing that what it takes to really understand the effects of a new thing is fairly comprehensive. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, just like the berberine, though. I mean, you take the berberine, and, and it was a fairly recent use of the berberine. Yeah. And, um, and so you weigh that against the, the fact that the metformin has actually been used longer, than the berberine in most cases. Um, But then we have things like like Bacopa Moneri. I mean, you talk about something that was just extraordinary. I mean, one of the oldest Ayurvedic, probably one of the first herbal treatments ever documented was Bacopa, and they combined Bacopa with Gotu Cola and cardamom and mixed it in ghee and gave it to everybody for stress reduction. Well, why did they do that? Well, it worked. Um, right. And it was used for centuries. And now we're just now kind of coming around from from modern life and saying, wow, you know, this Bacopa is pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Um, so, yeah, from an evolutionary standpoint, that was there all along. Right. And we ignored it because it was, you know, it was Ayurvedic medicine. You know, modern modern medicine is just like, you know, that's that's just voodoo. That's old stuff. Um but now we're coming around to it and saying, wow, this stuff really worked.
0: You know, I'll just share this because the audience might find it interesting. Doing science is a non-trivial process if you want to really do good science comprehensively. And most of what we think of as science is not comprehensive. So we can do something like uh, you know, phase three FDA approval clinical trials on a statin to show that it does lower LDL. That doesn't mean that it that it's actually good for health, right? It means that it was good for that metric. And so, of course, we'll see Viox and Premarin and so many drugs get pulled from the market after tens of thousands of people die, or that we just deal with the side effects and maybe we say the benefits are worth the side effects, but we're not looking at things that could have been comprehensively much better had we gone up line. And so, to do science means, well, which metrics do you study? Which metrics are going to be affected? Maybe millions right? We're only going to look at a few. so we're doing like with all of our ingredients and in quality right now, you know Dan and I are working together on doing meta analyses, and we have some other people on the team doing meta analyses of all the ingredients. And if we just look at all of this formal kind of scientific literature, we might have several hundred studies per ingredient that looked at different metrics in different kinds of audiences, what was done in sick populations, or in healthy, or in young, or in old, or male or female. Or, and there's a, actually making sense of that is non-trivial. And then you have stuff like what Chinese medicine found worked empirically for 5,000 years, but we don't have formal science on it yet, but we have a huge apocrypha of data or what say bodybuilders or elite athletes or different groups kind of through self-experimentation or quantified self have found has worked. And so uh, I almost think of science as too narrow a way of thinking about what we need to do. We think we're thinking of it as sense-making. How do we actually take all of the data, the confidence margins on the data, what part of it it looks at and put it all together and really make sense of health and well-being? And that's really what we like, I'd say that's at the core of what NeuroHacker is focused on over the next little bit is how do we scale our capacity to do sense-making in well-being so that we really know what works, what doesn't work, what does work even mean, what works at the expense of what, what could work comprehensively better across the space of meaningful health interventions and practices.
1: That's one of the things that drew me to NeuroHacker in the first place was You know, I'd been using a bunch of cognitive uh, nootropic enhancement uh, supplementation for years in in my clients. And, um, you know, you got about a 50-50 mix of responses. I mean, I actually was developing my own powder for a while. Um, But I was following a lot of the same rules that all these other companies did, is I would find a study that said, hey, this ingredient works really well for this outcome. And this ingredient works really well for this outcome. Well, great. So I've put in 10 ingredients that work on 10 different processes, but never really paid attention to the interaction of each of those with each other. Right. Um, And that, number one, impressed me with the ingredient research done on uh, NeuroHacker. But more so was the fact that I was getting... Over 95% of my clients taking the, the Qualia were reporting positive outcomes, which, you know, prior to that, it was about 50-50 of people saying, hey, this stuff really worked, or I didn't feel anything different with it. And when I'm seeing this, this really high response rate, I mean, that's what prompted me to reach out to you guys in the first place and want to get an interview with you to talk about the product because it just blew me away with uh, what I was hearing from subjective feedback from, from my clients.
0: And for the people who are listening, you know, I think that what we are doing here is barely scratching at the surface of what needs to happen and what we want to do. When you think about the fact that to take a pharmaceutical drug through FDA trials is in the vicinity of a billion dollars. It's gotten down to about a half a billion dollars for some. Some are still more than that, but then when you factor all the ones that fail in phase one or phase two you know, trials, it might be well over a billion dollars total um, costs for those that make it. And that doesn't mean that they actually cure anything. They're mostly symptomatic treatment, mostly with side effects. And it doesn't even mean that they're actually better than nothing at all five years down the road when we end up pulling, you know, and some of them get pulled. Like, there are a few that are great. Antibiotics have had a very useful application that's been limited. Of course, they've also had huge blowback wrongly utilized. Um, The new category of immuno-oncology is pretty awesome. But almost everything in cancer therapy up till this point was pretty sub-awesome. But... You know, part of why we don't know how to deal with autoimmune disease, we don't know how to deal with neurodegenerative disease, we don't know how to deal with cancer well, is if the cause isn't acute and obvious, and it's more complex, it's a hard thing to figure out. And so there's a whole different process medicine has to take. I won't go down this road too far, because Dan and I will do a whole podcast on this sometime. But in the same way that understanding all the complex causation feeding into a disease is, there's a lot involved to understand the effect of chemistry on the body and especially mixed chemistries on the body is actually fairly involved there's a lot of things to study so we paid as much attention as we could to thinking through whole pathways the entire acetylcholine regulation pathway the whole dopamine regulation pathway and where the rate limiting factors would be and if we open that up what are all the pathways that are known of that would be affected what the next rate limiters would be where might there be toxicity how do we make sure that doesn't happen but then how to actually assess all that further, right? Like, so we're doing trials, Dan and I are working on clinical trials, but uh, but clinical trials really just say, does this thing do something on a finite set of metrics more than the placebo does? That doesn't say, what is everything happening, right? So the fact that we think of clinical trials as a gold standard, so if there's a bell curve of effect, why did these people get great effects and these people got shitty effects, and that was only on whatever metrics? What about the gazillion other metrics? And what about the longer term metrics? And, so how do we create much more comprehensive methods of sense making systems as complex as human biology? This is, this is really at the heart of our mission here.
1: I digress. Yeah, I th- you know, I think we're we're coming up on with all the metrics we're starting to look at. Uh, we're coming up on a really exciting time in in this bioinformation age. I mean, with the quantified self stuff and everybody wearing it and contributing their genetic data and their lab work and and all of this information into the cloud, into these bioinformatics systems, I think we're truly starting to... I mean, we're we're really just scratching the surface of what what the potential is going to be. It's exciting.
0: Definitely. So we we might do an, a whole podcast on AI and bioinformatics and the future of diagnosis. Um, but coming back to Cognitive Chemistry Foundation. So protein, amino acids, I think we did a good initial start on that. What about fats, Fat, fatty acids, good fats, bad fats, necessary fats, sourcing of them, fats and cholesterol and their yeah, relationship I mean, to the brain?
1: You know, it's hard to, again, be judgmental on fats. <laughs> I'm back to the uh, to the good and bad. Uh, you know, it just drives me crazy that people call it good cholesterol mm-hmm. and bad cholesterol. Number one, to call it cholesterol is, is a misnomer. I mean, LDL and HDL, uh, mm-hmm. they're lipoproteins. I mean, they're significantly more than just cholesterol, um, but we've got them classified as cholesterol. The um, the LDL though, I mean, people look at it as bad cholesterol and it's a truly wonderful cholesterol. It's, it, I mean, it is lipo, low density lipoproteins, LDL. I mean, they transport fats all over our body for use in really healthy functions. Right. Um, you know there are different types of the ldl and you can you can classify that on a particle test which is important to do but to classify ldl as all bad cholesterol and all hdl is good is really not accurate and um, and again you know just get rid of the judgment on that and understand what you're looking at more So, so for those than- who
0: don't know like what does ldl do that's useful you mentioned transport fats but I don't think most people know the role that it has in, say, hormones, steroid hormone pathways or th- what the brain is made up of. Or...
1: Yeah, I mean, cholesterol is a, is a core, and LDLs transport cholesterol as well. So they're taking cholesterol around. I mean, our, our brain has a ton of cholesterol in it. Our, every cell wall in our uh, body is made up of fats and cholesterol. And this LDL is transporting this stuff around and delivering it. Um, our hormones, our hormones, the, the core component of hormones that they're produced from is cholesterol. Uh, vitamin D is made from cholesterol. So we've got all of these really beneficial aspects of cholesterol, and yet we put people on these low-cholesterol diets, which are basically killing them, um, because they're, you're limiting an essential, uh, thriving type of nutrient that that shouldn't be classified that way. Um, you know these these fats, and and there are there are good and bad, but most of the time the good and bad are related more so to your individual genetics and and how your body responds to it. I mean, you look at the French and Mediterranean paradox, and they consume significantly more fat. I mean, the Mediterraneans alone consumed 40 to 50 percent of their calories in fat and have the lowest heart disease rate well why is that well one genetics and two they consume the majority of their cholesterol in the forms of olive oil or fats in the form of olive oil i mean almost 50 percent of their calories they drink almost a liter a week of olive oil in a classic mediterranean um, dietary pattern I mean, a liter a week of olive oil, I try to get that. I, I think it's highly beneficial from um, an epigenetic standpoint. I mean, these things impact not only the direct utilization of these fats in creation of, um, of hormones and, um, and other um, lipoproteins throughout the body, But they also alter epigenetic expression, so they can change gene expression. Omega-3s and and olive oil, both, monounsaturated fats and omega-3s, they are wonderful about how they change gene expression in a very positive way in people. Now, omega-6s and saturated fats, they can be good for some people, but they can also be significantly problematic in people. It just depends on the individual. Now, omega-3s and, and, and monounsaturated fats, typically pretty good across the board, but not the omega-6s and the uh, saturated fats. And so that's why it's important to understand your body's response to those, because it can have a profound difference in the body's, um, body's outcome with the intake of those kind of nutrients. And, you know, everybody groups fat into one macronutrient, and we don't. I mean, it should never have been classified that way. I mean, you've got to look at fats as separate macronutrients. You have saturated fat, you have omega-9, omega-6, and omega-3s, and, um, and look at them from that macronutrient standpoint rather than looking at them as fats as a general recommendation.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions in there. So okay. you, you mentioned a pretty high amount of olive oil intake, and so I imagine that's going to be an actionable step some people follow up with. Is all olive oil
1: created equal? No, no. There's a, um, I'll, have to, I'll have to send you the link that you can put in the podcast, but there's a really good evaluation of uh, olive oils. And in the United States, apparently the rule is that you can still call it extra virgin olive oil and still add certain amounts of vegetable oil to it. And it also happens in a lot of the European olive oils that are shipped into the United States so you've got to get it number one from a very reputable source and uh, you want to make sure that uh, that you're getting it in a dark bottle um, you know people people are afraid to cook with extra virgin olive oil because of the smoke point but I've spent some time in Italy with some dietitians in Italy and looked at the studies on uh, cooking with extra virgin olive oil and unless you're deep frying with it and using it over several days in the deep fryer you're not going to really get the rancidity to it that uh, can create uh, problems with the uh, oxidation of the olive oil um, so you uh, or the oxidation of the fats in the olive oil so you're still pretty good to go ahead and stir fry with it you're you can cook on higher heat with it without the risk of uh, significant problems.
0: So I think this mm -hmm. is a point that maybe not everyone knows. Um, In terms of saying bad fats, there are certain kinds of fats that I think everyone really wants to avoid. Trans fats, definitely, and oxidized fats. Uh, You want to describe those categories maybe a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean the trans fats is a, it's a it's a fat that the body is incapable of utilizing in any way. It's it's like a foreign material to the body. I mean, you want to talk about synthetic um, that is truly synthetic, and the body's incapable of in any way using it, and it gets stored in the body. Unfortunately, um, you know, it's just like any of the organotoxins that we have. I mean, we store those in the in the fat cells in our body. But trans fats are, are very similar. They get stored, and for years we used Crisco, which was just pure uh, trans fat paste that we used in everything before we realized that it was uh, really creating all the health problems that, that are happening. But um, you know, when, when fats get oxidized, and, and what happens is a double bond within the fat itself will get hit with a free radical. And that free radical will add an oxygen to that double bond, and that creates what we call a rancid fat or an oxidized fat. And those are ones that the body recognizes and says, "Oh, this is this is foreign material. This is bad. This is an invader. I've got to wall it off." And they're the ones that get put into the walls of the vessels.
0: And particularly, rancid fats are the ones that have a higher carcinogenic load. Yes. So that people understand that trans fat basically means a hate hid- hydrogenated fat some kind of unsaturated fat that had hydrogen added so this is your margarine Crisco vegetable shortening when you take anything that says partially hydrogenated soybean oil all of that should be kind of rigorously avoided and um, you I don't think you can eat fast food and avoid it so that's a that's a good point and so fat that is damaged by hydrogenation should be avoided oxidized so this typically happens when you're cooking particularly sensitive fats at too high a temperature and so you notice there are some fats that are so sensitive like fish oil or flax oil that you keep in the fridge all the time because they can oxidize even at room temperature over a long enough period um so many people like to if they're going to have their fat in touch with a pan right if they're going to have it at that heat just go straight to a healthier saturated fat like Coconut oil, or butter, or palm oil. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, like I said, I, I found that the studies on the extra virgin olive oil does not create a significant amount of oxidation, uh, even with the high heats. And you know, I used to be the big proponent of you know don't use extra virgin olive oil for high heat cooking. But then when the data started coming out on it, and I started speaking with a lot of the the Italian dietitians, and we looked at the data, the research data on what it takes to truly mm-hmm. oxidize the extra virgin olive oil i realized that uh, it's not only the the temperature but the time and sure. that is something that i think a lot of people miss is that they're they're looking at you know oh it's the high heat well it's the high heat plus the time of exposure to that high heat that's important so a fast stir fry is going to be different than a long right. simmering process
0: at high yes. heat so I would actually love to see that data if you can send it to me and then I'll even l- link it in this uh, podcast if we can, Perfect. because I still am of the mindset that cooks with coconut oil um, or a saturated fat that has a much harder time oxidizing because it's all double bonds. Yeah. Um, so I'd be interested to see that. Yep. And th- thank you. So uh, so we mentioned that cholesterol is obviously necessary. Um, there's also issues of oxidized cholesterol.
1: Yeah. So how does that happen? Uh, well, any fat can oxidize. I mean, it's just it, free radicals. I mean, anytime you have a double bond, a double bond can get oxidized by an oxygen free radical because it's circulating around looking for a place to really, um, you know, get a get a, uh, a donor uh, electron there. So it's looking around for these, uh, these potential sites. And double bonds are, are the, the clear target. And the, um, the fats, the double bonds in the fats, are easy pickings for these free radicals. And anytime something gets oxidized, I mean, it's just not a natural process anymore. Once that oxidation occurs, the body looks at it and says, okay, there's something wrong with this, and I have to do something to react to it. So, any oxidation process is going to create an inflammatory response. It's going to create some type of um, protective response from the body. So, when you take particularly
0: sensitive fats and cholesterols, right, some of the highly polyunsaturated, like that are in fish and that are in um, good DHA free range eggs, do you cook them differently,
1: factoring that? You know, the biggest the biggest thing to consider is the how much free radical production a person typically has. I mean, I think that's important to consider when you're and, and this goes back to looking at the whole picture of things, rather than um, you know, going straight to this and saying, Okay, this is a, a good or a bad thing. Um you look at the overall picture. So why do people get a negative response from um from a fat that's, that's consumed that could potentially oxidize. Well, you know, you could eat really healthy fats that, and, and not consume oxidized fats or trans fats, but if you're generating a lot of free radicals, you're gonna create your own inside your body anyway. So what you wanna do is you wanna mitigate all the processes that are involved if you can. So you minimize the inflammation, you minimize the free radical production as much as you can. I don't think free radical scavenging is the best way to go in general. Um, because the body does a pretty good job of controlling free radicals in most people and the people who would benefit most from free radical scavengers are the really the couch potatoes that are just not really concerned about their health and they're not going to take supplements to begin with and the ones that are eating healthy that are generally taking supplements are the ones that typically don't need the free radical scavengers because they're not producing as many free radicals from the, from the inflammation altogether.
0: So as people are starting to understand that hormones are made from fat and cholesterol, it's a big deal, right? People's testosterone, their estrogen, their progesterone, their adrenal hormones made from fat and cholesterol. And most of the actual tissue of their brain, right? White matter in their brain, myelin, et cetera, is uh, fat and cholesterol based. Mm-hmm. Um, they start to recognize what a critical thing this is. Um, so you mentioned olive oil and particularly uh, sources that are reputable in terms of probably being not sprayed so organic um extra virgin stone pressed dark glass bottle i don't know about you i like i usually get bariani's brand i think that's one of the better ones i've found it is
1: actually i'll I'll send you that link so you can post it but uh, it's one of the top rated ones
0: yeah um what are sources for omegas that are going to be good dietary sources for people
1: well, one of the the best sources of, of omega-3s, you're talking omega-3s, correct? Um, the best sources of the omega-3s would be the fish. Um, but for the non-animal uh, sources of omega-3s, then you're going to lean more towards the uh, algae sources, which are really... Um, you know, there's there's something in, in you know we've talked about this before, but something about the charge on the surface of the of the particle that is different with the uh, algal source versus the animal source that gives it a better quality. And I meant to look that up before we talked, and I forgot to to get the results on it. But um, I mean, the EPA and DHA are the main omega threes that we're going to get, and. Vegetable sources, uh, non-animal sources of omega-3s are almost exclusively ALA, um, uh, the linoleic acids. And that ALA, is the. it requires the body to convert that ALA into EPA first. So one, we have to make sure that we have the genetics to be able to do that conversion. And two, that enzyme that does the conversion competes with Uh, arachidonic acid so it's competing with some omega-6s as well so that's why that omega-6 omega-3 balance is so important because if you have way high levels of omega-6 you don't have the the enzymes to really adequately convert ALA and even take EPA into DHA so let's let's clarify what EPA and DHA really are um EPA is the omega-3 that's responsible for uh, really the anti-inflammatory effect of omega-3s. And DHA is really one of the top brain health and uh, cardiac health forms of omega-3. But the process requires the conversion of EPA into um, DHA. So a lot of people will take um, high-dose EPA but not be able to convert it very well because of the fact that their enzymes are occupied with so much omega-6. So it's important to keep that balance. And that, you know, I, I think that's why we've always recommended that keeping the balance of omega-6 to omega-3 in the diet at four to one or less. I mean, I actually prefer to keep it, it as close to two to one or one to one as possible uh, in clients because it really does make a huge difference in inflammation. And our American diet is dealing with, you know, 15 to 20 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3. So our ability to even create DHA from exogenous sources is almost uh, nil when we're looking at that situation.
0: So why are we getting so much omega-6 relative to omega-3? And then talking more about the relationship of omega-6 and omega-3 to inflammation
1: and prostaglandins. Well, the... The main thing, that, the main reason we get it, and it's, it's, it's the American diet. I mean, we, we eat a lot of fried foods. Uh, we consume a lot of vegetable oils in, in just about everything that we we take in. And those vegetable oils are very high in omega-6. You talk about the, um, the fat content in commercially raised meats like, uh, like beef. You're going to get a high omega-6 level in that as well. Uh, so we tend and when to you get say a lot... vegetable oil so that
0: people understand you don't mean olive oil here and you don't mean no. um flax oil you mean specifically canola oil sunflower safflower corn uh, oil corn oil um you know the, the the cheap ones that are used in commercial shit right yeah right
1: and you know, we have a. There's really good charts online about the the omega six, omega three, and monounsaturated fat content of oils. Um, just d- if you do a Google search, there's plenty of them that come up that give you a good idea of what the balance between them are. Um, you know, like avocado oil. Avocado oil is a pretty good oil too. It's got a lot of a um, uh, lot of monounsaturated fat as well. Um, so you but, mm-hmm. you
0: were saying that we get omega six from those vegetable oils. Too much, we also get too much of it from meats. But so, like, if you talk about cattle, you can get one for one omega three to omega six in certain kinds of cattle raised certain ways. But it might be up to fifty to one in other cattle. So, can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's no different than the kind of diet we eat affects our composition. I mean, you are what you eat. That's that's essential, and that is the same that goes with the the meats that we consume when we consume animal products we are going to get the net result of what that animal consumed and you know there's certain grass-fed cows uh, tend to have a little bit higher um, omega, omega-3s and monounsaturated fats um, you will get grain-fed cows that will have very high omega-6 and very little omega-3s and then you have um, cows raised on this special clover up in, uh, in Scotland that will give you huge doses of omega-3s in the meat just because of what they're consuming. So we have to look at what we're consuming. And this goes the same with fish. I mean, you look at farm salmon versus, uh, versus wild-caught, and you're getting the same amount of omega-3s, so everybody's excited. Well, the same, it's the same omega-3 content. But that ratio of the omega three to the omega six is hugely different in the two. Uh, where you're talking about twice the amount. Um, I mean, you go from ten percent of the fat in in farmed salmon is omega three, and over twenty percent of the fat in uh, wild caught salmon is omega three. Mm-hmm. So that percentage makes a big difference now a lot of this comes down to the production of prostaglandins and prostacyclins and you can you can create pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. So if if you ha- and and these are these are the they're the main inflammatory um what we call cytokines in the body. So they're they're out there attacking inflammation. And and they're healthy for us. I mean, they're a good thing. They're out there to to respond to uh, things that are happening in our environment and protect us from it. But they have different responses to what happens when they interact. Some of them will create great amounts of inflammation and some of them will create very, um, almost anti-inflammatory responses when they interact. And the prostaglandins and prostacyclins that are made from omega-3s are typically anti-inflammatory, whereas the ones that are made from omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. And the way this works is these cytokines are lipoproteins. So there's a protein structure, and then you attach a a, a fatty tail to it. And those fatty tails are almost like a grab bag. So it's like you have this mix of omega-6 and omega-3s that you reach into the bag and you pull one out. And if you're 20 to 1, omega-6 to omega-3 you're going to pull out an omega-6 20 times for every one that you pull out of the omega-3. If you're down to a one-to-one, it's going to be a one-to-one pull, 50-50 chance of what you're going to pull from that grab bag to create that lipoprotein, that cytokine, that's going to be either pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. So that it's
0: clear uh, for everybody, most chronic disease is uh, are, are, involve pro-inflammatory conditions. So we see various kind of inflammatory uh, chemicals, cytokines and other chemicals, elevated for some period of time before the disease manifests symptomologically. And we're talking about everything from diabetes to cancer to heart disease to autoimmune disease to neurodegenerative disease are mostly situations where inflammation was supposed to be acute and go away and where inflammation was chronic over a long period of time, then disease states evolve. And so you're saying that uh, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is one of the deep things to pay attention to dietarily for overall inflammation, which is then a, one of the major indicators for likelihood for chronic disease of
1: most kinds. Right. I and, mean, that, that inflammation is the key to health. I mean, it is one of the true holy grails of health, health is keeping the, the inflammation in check. And it's not that all inflammation is bad, but typically chronic inflammation is going to be.
0: right. And so with regard to animal products, you mentioned farm versus wild-caught, and with regard to uh, cows, you mentioned grass-fed not being as good as on the clover that's probably seasonal only in some small part of the world. But is it fair to say that if people are going to make one step, if they hadn't already made this, getting off of any kind of factory-farmed animal product and making sure that they're at least getting free-range Organic hormone free sources is going to be a pretty huge step, and then finding out specific
1: sourcing within that
0: will be the next step.
1: yeah, I mean we could go into an entire um, podcast on the on the um, the commercially raised um, uh, animals um, about all of the negative impact that that can be experienced from that um, not only from you know from a, the health of the meat but the sustainability of the whole process. Um, I mean the glyphosate that's in the feed that goes into these animals I mean we're getting implications from that as well so the the grass-fed more organic I mean definitely is going to make a difference in our health and it's going to make a difference in the health of the environment by supporting that so that whole process is a very positive uh, win-win across the board so
0: as far as the healthy fats and healthy cholesterols go that are relevant to foundation of cognitive chemistry. We're talking about more omega-3s and more omega-3 relative to omega-6. So less of the omega-6 from conventional commercial animal products and from vegetable oils. More omega-3 from all sources and particularly good EPA and DHA sources. So this is wild caught fish and wild flax-fed chicken eggs and things like that. Yep. And then olive oil, well-sourced, avocado, coconut, nuts, seeds. Anything worth saying
1: about those? Well, you got to be careful with the seeds. I've seen a lot of my clients that get their their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio kind of mixed up uh, by eating too much, nut, too much in the yeah. way of nuts and a specific kind. I mean, you know, I had a woman the other day that was uh, – She was consuming a lot of almonds, and when we looked at the amount of omega-6 in her diet, 24% of her omega-6 was coming from her almonds, and she had about a 9-to-1 ratio. So for her, all we did was switch her to uh, macadamia nuts, and the macadamia nuts have a pretty high monounsaturated fat content, and so it just replaced that omega-6 with monos. So what it did is it actually reduced the omega 6 to omega 3 ratio because she took out right. the one factor there the, the omega 6.
0: Or she could have went to walnuts to get the 3 up. Exactly. Yeah. Um is there a good source that you recommend for people to be able to see omega 3, omega 6 content and other fatty acid
1: content in various foods? Um you know what? I just I typically just do a Google search of mm-hmm. of those um nutritionfacts.org which is they've had a lot of grief lately uh, but it's it's got some good um kind of information on the like we'll use that when we're looking at you know how much beta sterols in specific foods so they're very they're very in depth with what they do um with analyzing the the foods so you can search and say, okay, you know, what's that food highest in omega-6s? And it'll right. give you the list. You can pick nuts. You can pick oils. Um, that's a pretty decent source. I found some errors in their in their work, but uh, overall, it at least gives you a pretty good idea. It's not that far off.
0: And as we're talking about fats and cholesterol, there's maybe nobody currently who has been a stronger proponent for the value of fats and cholesterol than Dave Asprey. And specifically Absolutely. with this new book, Headstrong. Um some people will do better on it than other people. But I was actually really impressed reading that book at what a good overview of a lot of health topics I thought that it was. Um, yeah. So I think that's another resource that if people are wanting to learn more about different kinds of fats and fats that are likely to do better for them, it's a good resource.
1: There's a there's a book um, by Barbara Enos, Enos I think. Um, it's been years since I read it, but... It is the Bible of fats. I mean, if you're a if you're a biohacker and you really want the details of fats, um, that is is the true Bible of fats. I mean, it is in-depth dive into how fats work in the body, um, detailing all of the the chemical processes that are involved in the body that the fatter. I, I ordered the book off Amazon years ago and I couldn't figure out why the book was like two hundred bucks. It was a textbook. I mean it truly was a was a textbook that was that thick. Um, and it's been one of my favorite reads of any books that I've had on the on the fats. She did a What's wonderful it called? job. Uh it's called Know Your Fats, I think is the name of it. Um, let me just look, look it up here. And
0: the guy that did all the original work on a cosenoid modulation, that was the zone diet, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's it's know your fats by uh, Mary Enig E N I G, um, but yeah, she's uh, she's just written a wonderful book on it. I, I keep going back to it frequently. It's from two thousand, okay. so it's an old book. But man, she knew their stuff back then, even.
0: So as we're still as we're still on the uh nutrition topic because there's a lot of little tendrils. <laughs> so we we've talked a little bit about amino acids, we've talked a bit about fatty acids. Um for brain cognitive health, let's talk a little bit about micronutrients. Okay. So vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals.
1: Yeah, et and I you know, I tend to to really I'm one of the guys that leans towards a low level of supplementation for for micronutrients or the vitamins and minerals, uh, just because we have such a depleted diet, and it's really hard to get that full mix of, of nutrients. Yeah. And a low dose of a multivitamin um, is generally a pretty good outcome that I've seen. I mean, I've seen people come in, and, and we found micronutrient deficiencies, uh, clearly symptomatic on certain areas, and we put them on a low-dose multivitamin haven't seen any toxicities with it but if a a vitamin says you know take four of these a day i take two Uh, so just providing because i you know i eat a pretty balanced diet overall a pretty uh, nutrient-rich diet i think but i still take a multivitamin just because of that triage factor that you know i don't want to be deficient in in selenium because i'm not eating enough brazil nuts um you know, if I were going after it, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many days in a year I eat Brazil nuts, and and still, you know, there's not a whole lot of selenium you're going to find in other foods. We see copper deficiencies uh, in people, which are pretty common, and, you know, that's critical for, for thyroid conversion into active forms. Um, zinc, um, very common deficiency, magnesiums. Let's, let's take copper and zinc as a fun example. Okay.
0: Magnesium is pretty straightforward. Deficiency is almost ubiquitous, and toxicity is pretty much unheard of, right? right. So, like, more magnesium is just a good idea. Yep. Um, and is a pretty safe way to go. And I'm a particularly big fan of topical magnesium, mm-hmm. uh, magnesium oil, because there's just kind of its rate-limited GI absorption. Um, have you have you played with that?
1: Uh, I haven't. My wife has, and she really likes it. Um. You know, she she uses it for sleep purposes, and it works really well for her.
0: Yeah, so mm, there's lots of different ways to get magnesium. Uh, the reason we use magnesium bound to threonine is magnesium threonate in qualia specifically because of the research of it having unique capacity to elevate central nervous system levels. The, but but copper and zinc are an interesting example because they're both absolutely essential nutrients, but they can also be problematic Within fairly narrow ranges, that if you haven't done testing first, like they're tricky ones for me, right? Because they
1: are. Yeah.
0: So you want to talk about that for a minute?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, copper excess and copper deficiency is is there. There's two that we pay most of our attention to in our clinical practice, and it is copper, and it is uh, selenium. Those are two that require I mean they, they have a very narrow spectrum of, of optimal levels, and it 's very easy to over supplement. I see a lot of people um, going to functional medicine practitioners getting getting selenium supplementation and they, they generate toxicities that uh, mm. that can create um, uh, significant problems for them. Um, I mean copper you get too much copper and you know you're you're getting into uh, high blood pressure Um, uh, i see women with uh, menstrual issues Uh, when they get too much copper uh, you can get i mean schizophrenia and hallucinations with copper so there's there's a pretty uh, diverse spectrum of symptoms that you can that can be indications of top copper toxicity um but you can no. also see it with deficiencies. Right. I mean, um, you can get psychological issues with deficiencies just as you get it on uh, the opposite end of it. You get the uh, the psychiatric um, symptoms as well.
0: So the work of uh, Dr. Pfeiffer that led to Dr. Walsh's work in yeah. um, kind of orthomolecular psychiatry, copper and zinc were right at the heart of it, right? Cryptopyroluria and histamine yep. disorder and <clears throat> methylation disorder. That was actually some of the work that when I first came across it really got me into this space because they had such tremendous work reversing schizophrenia and even psychopathy, sociopathy, like pretty serious things through very simple methods, right? Like chelating copper and giving zinc and people's hydroxylase balance. And so their dopamine to norepinephrine balance, they were just different people. Now they had impulse control. I find this fascinating from a jurisprudence point of view right because if someone is acting violently because they have damaged hardware and they don't know about it do you, is that a punishment or is that a <laughs> do proper medicine right um, and from a what could be possible for the world if we didn't have a lot of people that were in low-grade psychopathology because it seems like m- you know people are in low-grade psychopathology because of stress and childhood trauma and you know poor programming but also because their physiology is just pretty tweaked out of balance yeah and we're not talking fully diagnosable dsm psychopathology we're talking you know subclinical generalized anxiety disorder subclinical ptsd but so like when you look at the copper zinc thing i i love to send people to functional medicine docs who've been trained in walsh as have yeah. been trained in many things but to kind of get that assessment what do you think of that
1: yeah i love the walsh protocol i mean i think it uh it really adds uh, significant value i mean uh dr Walsh is brilliant i mean his uh, his whole work on methylation and uh and the uh, uh, the copper and the zinc aspects of uh health i mean i think he's he's pioneered that and know he's well known in the functional medicine community but he's just he's not that well known he you know he's not that self promoter that's out there mm-hmm. um really building up a uh, reputation for himself. But among the functional medicine practitioners, I know the ones that have gone and and done his training have had really amazing outcomes with uh, their clients.
0: I'll just let everybody here know that one of the things that we're working on, we're still early in the stages of it, is being able to uh, curate all of the functional medicine, integrative medicine doctors that are trained in kind of the integrative psych work, and put them all online so that people who want to go get deeper work done can actually go find docs that are well trained and then help promote the training uh, deeper through those networks. So it's one of the big reasons we partner with Dan to help us with that is beyond what we can do as a company that goes direct to consumer, how can we really help the field of integrative psychopharmacology, psychiatry be advanced so that there are good solutions available to more people. Um, Okay, so You know, like there are a lot of supplements, multivitamins, that are iron free or copper free for this reason. And Mm -hmm. so menstruating women, usually it's not an issue, Um, but for, with iron at least, but hemochromatosis is not that uncommon. Do you, would you recommend that if people haven't done any testing? that they go for a multi that is iron copper-free until they find out, or do, is, is this based on gender menstruation? How do you navigate that one?
1: Well, typically, um, like I said, I, I typically tell them to go with half dose of what's recommended um, on those, and, and you're getting a low enough level. Iron Iron's tricky. Um, not quite as tricky as the copper, but the the iron can be pretty tricky because... Uh, hemochromatosis is probably the most common genetic mutation in um, in the US population as far as the white Anglo-Saxon population Um, it's pretty common in uh, especially in the in the Eastern Appalachian region we see a lot of it and it doesn't manifest until uh, 40s in males uh, a little later in females that because of their menstruating they keep it under control But if you identify it early, you can uh, prevent any significant organ damage and keep the treatment going. But um, you know, iron iron is one of those things. (laughs) I see more iron deficiency than I see any risk of overload, and I can tell you, I have a I have a um, just a peeve with people who crunch ice, and I, I I know about. Uh, pica with uh, with iron deficiency, and you know, I used to do gastric bypass surgery, weight loss surgery, and pica was very common in people that weren't taking their multivitamins. So, pica is a uh, is an iron deficiency, and you have this desire to, uh, and it works in the brain, and it's this desire to eat something that crunches, um, and one of the most common desires is to eat dirt. And I had a patient in my office that said. I picked up a handful of dirt, and it took everything within me to resist taking a bite of it. Um, so iron, I mean, that iron deficiency, think about that. I mean, it plays a significant role in behavior. Uh, now, pica it, is a
0: is a term from veterinary medicine, right? right. Um, and it's animals that were fed a diet that was deficient in certain minerals started eating wood or anything they could, right? Because they're craving minerals. Stool. (laughs) Right. And so because um, in animal husbandry, they had such a clear insight in what the animals were being fed and they had kind of full control over it where we don't in human medicine and then being healthy had economic benefits, I think veterinary medicine kind of led the way in a lot of areas of nutrition. Um, But with regard to the eating ice thing, is that well... I you know, I've, I've heard this a million times, I've never looked at it myself, is the impulse to eat ice correlated with iron
1: deficiency uh, an actual well-correlated thing? Well, I, I don't know what the research is on it. I know, you know, you read about it and you say, you know, ice crunching is common with that, but I saw it, and that was one of the questions I would ask, and I did 3,000 gastric bypasses, so I had a lot of patients that I was taking care of, and... I would ask them if they were crunching ice. Uh, That was one of the common questions I would ask at follow-up, and I followed them up long-term. And sure enough, uh, I had plenty of them that were crunching ice, and they quit taking their multivitamin, or they quit taking... Mm -hmm. We actually had to put them on a separate iron supplement, um, most of the gastric bypass patients. And um, the ones that quit taking it, ice crunching was very common, and as soon as they got their iron levels back up, they stopped. And
0: iron specifically, not other minerals?
1: Well, I I mean it, we we saw it associated directly with the iron supplementation, not the multivitamin itself. Mm-hmm. So we were doing um, a multivitamin and we had a separate supplementation for iron with them. And when they would quit taking the iron, that was where we saw it. Now, most people
0: who many people who are listening who are not working with a functional medicine doc already or an integrative doc, when they do their iron labs, they might just be looking at iron and maybe TIBC and hemoglobin some basic things but they're probably not looking at say ferritin right um so they might not see anemia but they might still be dealing with suboptimal iron levels or utilization can you say well i mean serum
1: serum iron is about the most useless test you can get i mean it really it it doesn't give much value uh to outcome i mean you you want to get that ferritin level you want to know total iron stores of the body and it's just a little bit more expensive. Um, it, you know, it's funny. I laugh about the fact that we get all these tests that physicians really have no idea what they're they're testing in a lot of <laughs> a lot of the cases. You'll ask somebody what a TIBC is, and they're like, uh, "Well, I'm not really sure. Um, what does it indicate? Well, I don't know. Uh, we see it with uh, MCV on the on the CBC. It's a common test everybody gets, but a lot of physicians and um, and clinicians just don't really know what it is because it hasn't been something that they've focused on. You know, for us we focus on these outcomes. Um one of the 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 funniest ones is free T3 uh uptake or RT3 uptake. Um uh, you you ask physicians what it means and you get varying responses of of what it's indicative of and what it's testing. Um so we get a lot of these tests that we really just kind of get the test and it's usually part of a package deal so we don't pay attention to it because we're looking at this other test we get so um kind of tunnel vision when it comes to testing that we're looking at the major things that jump out and you know before you know it you're writing wnl on every lab requisition which means um within normal limits but uh, we joked about it in functional medicine saying we never looked um because you just I've seen people that had WNL written on a, um, on a lab result in significantly abnormal labs that were showing up on there.
0: Right. Okay. So maybe in our third session, when we get into advanced topics, we'll come back to which labs are actually worth running for oh, cool. yeah. cognitive chemistry and then where people can go to get those. And, um, so micronutrients, you were saying you like uh, kind of multi supplementation, low level. Uh, any particular things? Any particular product lines you'd recommend for people, or uh, things to look at?
1: You know, I don't, I don't really want to uh, promote any particular line for sure because there's there's quite a few good ones. I mean, yeah. you know, you look out there and you've got, um, you know, I don't even want to name them because uh, I'll leave somebody out that has a really good product. Um, Generally, just the functional medicine docs have a pretty good finger on the pulse of this. Uh, they can give so you for a pretty people good. People who, who
0: don't know here, if they're buying it at Long's or Vons or something, the chance that it's good is small. Um, if they're buying one that their chiropractor carries or their doctor carries, Metagenics, Thorns, imogen, whatever, the the chances are
1: higher that the
0: ingredients are well sourced.
1: Right. Yeah, and that you know that goes the same with supplements. I mean, you want to get a company that that really is sourcing really good quality organic, uh, independently tested product. I mean, I think that's important too, is independent testing, because a lot of product will come from China, and it's not that the China product has anything wrong with it, but you know, I found companies would say, oh, we do in-house um, testing for the for contaminations in the product. Well. You know what? They probably aren't really doing that. I mean, some do, but the ones that will get a batch of product in, like one of the companies I use, um, they actually send it out. So if I send them a a, a request and I say, you know, in your five HTP, what's the uh, the contamination of um, of um, peak X? Peak X was what caused the eosinophilia and tryptophan years ago and they will send me they'll ask me the batch number and they'll send me a report from an independent lab of the batch as it came in that is good quality and that's why I stick with that company Um, herbal companies like Gaia herb I mean they're locally sourced uh, they're actually here in Asheville and uh, I've seen their facility it's a wonderful facility they're their standards are very high and so you know we use them quite a bit
0: so when it comes to just broad spectrum right like a lot of people might not know but if you if you're going to even take a mineral like say magnesium magnesium can be in the form of a lot of different forms right it can be bound to a bunch of amino acids it can be bound to a bunch of vitamins and they can all have different benefits uh for and be differentially uptaken for different systems of the body Not only do we have, you know, 72 plus trace minerals, how many of our different vitamins, but then phytochemical content. So for just like kind of baseline supplementation, what you're mentioning with the multi, I'm a pretty big fan of like the complex green superfood powders um, as a way to just make sure that people are augmenting their diet with pretty wide plant sourced uh, nutrient profiles. And then I'm a pretty big fan of rotating them. What are
1: your you know, thoughts on that? I, you know, I, I think phytosterols, lotus phytosterols. And for me, you know, I don't consume a great deal of vegetables. So uh, those green sources, uh, green powders are great. Um, I'll put them in my protein shakes. And, you know, you can't use them as a replacement. I mean, they, they say, you know, they're equivalent to like six servings a day. No, it doesn't work <laughs> quite that way. Uh, but at least it gives you those those phytonutrients that that are essential. Now, phytonutrients... One thing to understand about phytonutrients is phytonutrients are toxins, okay? They're, uh, they're toxic to the body. Uh, enough of a dose of them and they can kill you. But they're beneficial because they're toxins. And this is, this is a horm- hormetic effect, a hormesis, where we take low-dose toxins so that our, it upregulates our body's um, detoxification system when the detox enzymes are exposed to low levels of toxins, they upregulate and that's beneficial because it keeps the body on guard and it keeps it healthy. And, and it's like training the soldiers, you know, it's constant training for them by getting those phytonutrients in there.
0: I think it's important to say someone could say, well, I'm just getting enough toxins from being in a house with volatile organic compounds and eating glyphosate and like, maybe like Cheetos do that for me instead of phytochemicals. Um, not all things that are stressors are hormetic, <laughs> right? No. Like some some things we have evolved mechanisms to upregulate in response to, like chemicals from plants that were part of our evolutionary environment, as opposed to chemicals that we really don't even have an evolved detox mechanism for. And so the body is really just goes into overload trying to deal with it rather than hormetic upregulation. Right. A huge difference in the two. Yeah. Um, any other... Just like baseline notes on micronutrients that people should know.
1: Uh, you know, one thing we didn't go into is choline. Yeah, you let's know, talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we see we see a lot of people that have the potential from a genetic standpoint of choline deficiencies and um, require choline supplementation. I mean, it's, it's a common genetic variant. I, mean, I don't want to call it a mutation because it's not a mutation, but it's not uncommon for people to have the inability to create enough choline on yeah. a daily basis. And so supplementation is is essential in these and there's various forms that you can get that are important to understand.
0: So food sources, if someone was going for it?
1: Well, one of the greatest is uh, egg yolk. Uh, egg yolk and, and one of my least favorite foods, the liver. Um, very good source of choline but uh, runny egg yolks you know when you cook an egg yolk if it's not runny you're going to get about a third of the uh choline from that uh, but the egg yolk itself in a liquid egg yolk you're going to get a uh, pretty good dose of the of the choline and that's that's about you know the rest of the stuff is pretty minor contribution of choline but the body can make choline uh it's yeah. just you, you know when you can make it and you have adequate numbers to make it, it's not a big deal. But when you're very active and things like that, you're gonna have to get some choline in. And if you don't like runny egg yolks, then supplementation is your next uh, best choice. And so for people who don't know, why is choline relevant? Choline is uh, a very ubiquitous um, nutrient because it's involved in so many processes. Cetylcholine, uh, so, choline combines with acetyl-CoA to to form acetylcholine, and it is the most ubiquit- ubiquitous neurotransmitter that we have. I mean, it's uh, not only responsible for neurotransmission in the brain, but also at the neuromuscular junctions. Where it's what the nerves tell our muscles to, to fire. Uh, they're being told by acetylcholine. So, it's uh, really an essential... Um, substance to have in our bodies at adequate levels. Yeah.
0: Motor process, sensory process, memory, processing speed of cognition.
1: I mean, you, you name it, it's involved in some cognitive aspect, but also yep. in every motor aspect too.
0: Yep. So choline as a precursor for acetylcholine is one of the key things. Also yeah. in the liver as a lipotropic factor that processes fats and lots of other beneficial things. So you mentioned eggs and liver. What do you think about lecithin, if someone wanted to do a kind of basic supplement?
1: You know, I'm not a big fan of lecithin <laughs> in general. I think there's there's some toxicities themselves to the lecithin on the uh, gut lining. Um, you know, it is, a, it is a toxin to the gut lining. I mean, low dose is, is typically okay, but too much lecithin uh, can lead to some leaky gut issues in some people. It's not everybody, but, it, I mean, it, it truly is a... a toxic substance to the to the enterocytes, and you can get gap junction leaks and everything by abnormal reactions to the lecithin.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are your thoughts on uh, sourcing and its involvement in that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, soy is the most common source that we're going to run into with the lecithin. Um, and, you know, you, ha- you have to wonder about that, though. I mean, when you're talking about something that's such an isolated chemical um, or substance... You know, how much contamination of the of the source are you going to get in that? And I don't think it's that great of a, a, an issue. It, you know, the soy lecithin itself, you know, like I said, you'd heard me say earlier, I'm not a big fan of soy, but, um, you know, people just it tend to not react well to, to the lecithin, and I don't think it matters whether it's a soy or something. I think it's more just related to the lecithin itself.
0: So as far as getting into the actual supplementation, I won't... Uh dive into the topic now, but obviously optimizing the acetylcholine pathway is kind of the foundation of nootropics. So maybe next video we'll dive into that. Um and that's everything from choline donors to acetyl donors to acetylcholine esterase inhibitors to the racetams that modulate the acetylcholine
1: uptake, that whole thing. So um you know one thing we'll I do want to that. mention about the choline though is um I've had I run the genetics on people with their choline production. And um, when I see deficiencies, especially in females that have had kids, I'll ask them if they had any problems breastfeeding because mm-hmm. uh, a newborn requires in the first couple of weeks really high-dose choline in the, in the breast milk. And women that have genetic variants don't produce as much choline. Now, it's okay if they're supplementing with a multivitamin that has choline in it. They can generally get enough from that. But if they're not then they will be told that their baby is not thriving on the breast milk or that they need to supplement bottle feedings. And sure enough, I've had probably 30%, 40% of the women that had uh, choline variants that indicated reduction of choline, uh, that they had trouble. Or they were told that their breast milk wasn't um, helping their child, their newborn. Mm-hmm. That's and, Yeah, I mean, all they needed to do was, was supplement with the choline, and it probably would have taken care of the issue. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think we are at time so we kind of just got through some categories of nutrition for um foundation of nutrient's brain needs. We didn't get into microbiome yet. We didn't get into toxicity or other things, but it's a big topic. We had already tried to chunk it. So next time we'll still go to um uh nootropics and smart drugs and then on to advanced topics, but we might we might uh, come back if you're open to it in the future and do uh say uh neuroinflammation and toxicity and uh microbiome and other things in the future
1: yeah we could write a book on this stuff you know that
0: (laughs) i'm down (laughs) i think that'd be fun um getting the uh getting the program together of more advanced training for docs is the part that i'm most excited about so that people actually have resources to go to um So everybody stay tuned. We're working on that. If you have any uh, ways of helping, feel free to contact us. And Dan, this was fun. I'm looking forward to the next one, which we'll do and post soon. And um, I'll try and get the the links for the books that were mentioned in here and put them in the notes. And um, thank you. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you. It was wonderful. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights. For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes.